Well, good evening. If you've got your Bible, please turn to John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We're going to have the words up on these screens. You can follow along there. We're in John chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at uh, two separate sections, but it's talking about the same narrative. So we're going to be in John chapter 18, starting in verse 15, and then we will pick up again in verse 25. And before we turn to uh, that passage, let me introduce myself. If I haven't met you, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the executive pastor here at Desert Springs. Uh, so I get to preach uh, some, sometimes. They let me preach. And it is my privilege to get to bring this word to you tonight. So if you've got your Bible, John 18, we're going to begin in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Well, I have to admit that uh, I have always thought of myself as a somewhat fairly athletic and coordinated person. Uh, I do cardio. I played Texas high school football, 6A. I was also player of the week in my third grade soccer camp. In 1995. But this last week, something happened that called all of that into question. I've been coaching my daughter's soccer team, assistant coach. And in our game on Monday, somebody let a ball roll out onto the field while the game was happening. And so being an assistant coach, I thought it was my responsibility to run and go get the ball. And so instead of picking it up, I thought, I'm going to just do a simple move, turn, kick it back to the sideline, trot back off the field. And as I ran to the ball and tried to do my simple move, I totally ate it. Just broke both ankles, fell down right there on the ground, hyperextended my elbow in front of like 50 people. It felt like 5,000 people. So I'm laying there on the ground, I hop up, I tap the ball back over, and I try to act like nothing has happened. I run over there in excruciating pain, and I'm like, come on, Billy, let's go, just, you know, kick the ball. The worst thing about it was it made me realize that maybe I am not as coordinated and athletic as I thought I was. And our failures have a way of doing that, don't they? Whatever we might think of ourselves, whatever view we have of ourselves, It's when we fail that we often get a very good idea of who we actually are. And I'm not just talking about the funny, embarrassing failures, although I'm sure you all have a wonderful time after this talking about your own embarrassing moments. At least I hope I'm not the only one. 
But no, even more, our, our more serious failures, our moral failures, our spiritual failures. And we've all come in here tonight with those too, haven't we? It's our failure that exposes who we really are. And it is God's response to our failure that exposes the beauty of the gospel. And I hope that that's what we see as we consider uh, this Good Friday and Easter series as we look at Peter's denial and his resurrection. That we would remember that it wasn't because we were good that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. But in fact, the opposite. It's because we are all failures. We are all sinners in need of a savior. And that is the good news that we think of this Easter weekend. So tonight we're going to begin by considering what is certainly one of the most famous failures in the Bible. Our sermon title this evening, as you can see, is Denial and Deliverance. And those two D words will be our two points in our outline tonight, denial and deliverance. So first, let's consider this denial. Now it's important to remember at the outset that the Apostle Peter is no slouch I think sometimes our view of Peter, the way that we talk about Peter, it can be a little inaccurate. It can be a little too shaded by these very famous moments of weakness that we see in Peter's life. But we have to remember that in every one of the four gospel narratives that we have in the Bible, of all of the 12 apostles, the apostle Peter, or Simon, or Simon Peter, or sometimes Cephas, this brother had a lot of nicknames, okay? They're all the same guy that in every one of our four gospel accounts, he comes forward as the most prominent. In every list of the apostles that we get in our Bible, Peter is always listed first. And he's often seen as speaking on behalf of the other disciples to Jesus. It's kind of like he's the leader of this group of disciples. Some commentators have even called him the chief of the apostles. Peter was one of the first disciples that Jesus called. We read that story tonight. And he was with Jesus for all of his teaching and all of his miracles. Peter saw the sick healed. He saw demons cast out. He saw people fed miraculously. He even saw the dead raised. Peter saw Jesus walking on water. And not only that, but then asked Jesus if he could walk on the water to him, which he did until he got scared and started sinking. And as Alex read for us this evening, it was Peter who first confessed that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him, saying that he has gotten this insight, not from man, but from God. Peter was the first to understand that Jesus truly was the King of Israel. Then, of course, we can't forget that immediately after that confession, Peter then rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to die on a cross and Jesus turns around and calls him Satan. But that's Peter, right? I think that's why we all like Peter so much. Because who can't relate to that, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, this, this mixture of faith and failure, of having these moments of great insight and understanding and And then almost immediately after, these moments of failure. 
But for all of that, let's not downplay Peter's faith. Let's not downplay the prominence that Peter rightly has in the Gospels, or else we might misunderstand the significance of what we're looking at tonight. As James Montgomery Boyce put it, Peter is no miserable specimen chosen among the ranks of Christ's worst followers. No, Peter is the best. Yet, it is this one who falls, not only dreadfully, but speedily and with slight provocation. And that's the point. That Peter's denial is so striking because it came from the disciple that you would expect it from the least. In fact, even Peter didn't expect it, did he? Alex read this for us tonight too in Matthew 26, that Peter, in front of all of these other disciples, says... Though they all fall away because of you, Jesus, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter doubles down in verse 35. He says to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Well, that's where we come to our narrative tonight and the gospel according to John. Peter made that bold promise. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He made that at the last supper, the upper room where Jesus met with his disciples the very last time. And after that meal, Jesus departed with his disciples and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now at this point, it's very late at night. It might even be early in the morning on Friday morning. And if you've got your Bible open to chapter 18, you see that it's in verse 3 that a large band of soldiers led by one of Jesus' other apostles, Judas Iscariot, they arrive in the garden and they move to arrest Jesus. But before they can grab Jesus, Peter jumps in. In verse 10 of chapter 18, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, And cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Matthew's account of this scene adds the detail that at this point, all the disciples left Jesus and fled. So imagine at this point, Jesus is alone. He said this was to fulfill prophecy. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So Jesus is all alone, bound, tied up, taken by this large crowd of soldiers and priestly servants back to the court of the high priest where he's going to be subjected to the first of several different trials and interrogations by Jewish leaders. And all of these trials are illegal. They are unjust. We know that these men are already planning at the outset to condemn Jesus and put him to death. They are just looking for a good excuse. And this is where we pick up with our text in verse 15. So while Jesus is on the way to the trial, Peter, and it says another of Jesus' disciples, that's usually assumed to be the Apostle John who wrote this book, they sneak back into the crowd to follow Jesus. The other gospel accounts say that they're following Jesus, but that they're following at a distance. At least Peter is. This other disciple, 
is let into the courtyard. And in verse 16, he arranges for the servant girl who's watching the door to let Peter in. And then let me say that again. Servant girl. This is a young woman. Probably like a kid. Terrifying. But as Peter is walking in, she asks, you also aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? It's not an intimidating question. It's not a threatening question. It kind of assumes that he isn't. And what does Peter say? I am not. That's denial number one. If you're familiar with the gospel according to John, you know that John has it structured or peppered through with these what are called I am statements from Jesus. These statements about who Jesus is alluding to the divine name Yahweh. Even in the garden when he's arrested, Jesus speaks, I am. Many commentators see this as a contrast to that. I am not. So in verse 18, Peter is let into the courtyard and he makes his way over to a charcoal fire. Isn't that an interesting little detail that John gives us? This is a charcoal fire. Make a note of that. Just, just file that away, trust me. Now at this point in verse 19, John's narrative shifts away. It shifts to Jesus being questioned by the high priest. But I think we can assume that Peter is watching all of this happens. And, and as John has it written with this kind of back and forth narrative, what really stands out is Jesus' resoluteness in contrast to Peter's fear and denial. Jesus tells the priests that he's acting unlawfully. He tells them to find real witnesses that can accuse Jesus of doing something wrong if in fact he's guilty of anything, which of course he isn't. And in response to this resoluteness in response to this righteousness they strike Jesus on the face and they tie him up again and they begin to march him off to another trial before the whole council of the Jews well then John picks up in verse 25 cutting back to Peter still standing by the fire and now imagine they're warming themselves by the fire it's very dark it's very cold this is nighttime nobody can really make out anybody's face And Peter is probably standing there surrounded by these other servants and soldiers of the high priest. He's standing there with people that are enemies of Christ. Imagine what their conversation must have been like as they're watching this so-called Messiah get abused by the high priest. And then suddenly they turn to him. The other gospels say that Peter's accent might have been giving him away, that he talked like a Galilean. And they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? But Peter denied it and said, I am not. That's denial number two. Then verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. That's number three. And at once a rooster crowed. For all of Peter's bravado, for all his words just hours before in the upper room, for everything that Peter thought he was, It happened just like Jesus said it would. 
before the rooster crowed, before that very night was up, Peter has denied his Lord three times. He's failed. We might wonder, why exactly? Why did Peter deny Jesus? The text doesn't explicitly tell us what was going on in Peter's mind here. I mean, certainly he is afraid of punishment or even death. He's just seen his master arrested and tied up, struck on the face. Now he's standing in the courtyard with all of these other soldiers who have these weapons who are just as opposed to Jesus. And what would they do if they found out that he was one of their disciples? But wasn't this the same Peter who moments before was ready to fight these soldiers with their weapons? Wasn't this the Peter that cut off a dude's ear? What changed? Jesus told him to put his sword away. I think when Peter was saying to Jesus, I will die with you, what he had in mind was going out in a blaze of glory, fighting side by side with Jesus, his Lord, weapons drawn. But that's not how Jesus was going to go. And just a few verses later, Jesus is going to be with the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and he's going to say this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So instead of fighting, Jesus is going to be delivered over. There's no glorious resistance There's just shame, beaten, mocked, and scorned. Jesus is going to die, not in glory, but in dishonor. And I wonder if Peter just couldn't fathom that. Perhaps this fact even led to some serious doubt and confusion for Peter about who Jesus actually was. Because Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, But did he still not understand, despite all of Jesus' teaching to the contrary, that this Christ, rather than being the conquering warrior hero that the Jews expected, instead he was going to die on a cross. Even this night, did Peter still have in mind the things of man and not the things of God? Whatever it is, we know all of these fears and doubts and confusion, they're swirling around in Peter's mind as he follows the crowd into this courtyard. And it must be a very intense, very confusing, very intimidating situation when Peter is all of a sudden put on the spot by a little servant girl. Have you ever been there? You end up in a place you weren't expecting, maybe with people that you hadn't planned on being with, and then suddenly temptation comes. And you don't have time to think about it. You don't have an answer prepared. All you can do in that moment is just respond. And it's in those moments that what we really are comes out. What's actually there in our hearts? It says Jesus taught us. It's out of the abundance of our hearts. It's about what's on the inside of us that that comes out in all manner of sin. 
no matter what we think of ourselves, no matter what we claim to be, this is how we know who we really are. And Peter is in this moment of temptation and he fails. He denies his Lord. The gospel according to Luke gives some extra details at this moment that I think are just so powerful. It says that right after Peter's third denial, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Remember this, they're in the courtyard together. Peter's watching all of this happen. And Jesus and Peter lock eyes. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to them, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And then Luke says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. And that's the right response. He is feeling this sense of guilt, this right response to divine displeasure because this moment has proven that he does not love Jesus more than he loves his own life. He doesn't love Jesus more than he loves himself. And when it finally came to the moment of decision, Peter has decided to align himself with Christ's enemies, to make himself an enemy of God in that moment. And that's what sin is. That's what sin does. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, and maybe this word sin or this idea of sin is, is new to you, we would say that sin is any failure to keep the commands of God, to obey the will of God, to do what God has said that we are to do. And every act of sin is an act of rebellion against God, is, is an act of enmity towards God. And so we ought rightly to weep over our sin, to appreciate the gravity of what this is, a betrayal of our God who has loved us. We have denied him, and we weep over our denials. We weep. We are sorry. We weep now, or we will weep in eternity in a place where Jesus says there is forever weeping and gnashing of teeth. We weep because we're sinners in need of deliverance, just like Peter. And so this brings us to our second point. If we were to keep reading in John's gospel, we would see that Jesus is taken from this Jewish court and he is brought before the Roman governor, Pilate, for several more rounds of interrogations. If you, have, if you have never read this portion of John's gospel, you should. It's fascinating, these interactions that uh, Jesus has with Pontius Pilate. Because the Jews have already condemned Jesus to death, but they need the Roman authorities to give approval to it. They need the Romans to actually carry out the death Sentence. And so Pilate is interrogating Jesus. He is asking Jesus questions. And Jesus is just as resolute as ever. There's no wavering. There's no, uh, he, he, is, he is sticking to the points. And it baffles Pilate. Pilate has Jesus flogged, 
beaten. They mock him. They dress him up like a pretend king and they beat him some more. It's all kind of this way of saying who is really in power. It's like saying, okay, you think you're a king? Well, we'll show you how much power you actually have. But again, this whole time, Jesus doesn't argue. He doesn't plead. He doesn't make a case for his release. And Pilate is intrigued by this. In John 19, verse 10, Pilate speaks to Jesus and says, will you not speak to me? Will you not defend yourself? Will you not make a case for yourself? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? As I was reading this, I was picking up all of these echoes of, I think, Christ's temptation in the wilderness when Satan is offering Jesus a bargain. And that itself has echoes of Adam's own temptation in the Garden of Eden, the the very first failure, the, the one that led to all of the other failures in all of our lives right up to this very moment, this, this bargain that says, just deny God's authority. Sin. Bow down to another power and you'll be set free. Deny the Lord like Peter did and you can save yourself. But Jesus, unlike Adam, unlike Peter, knows that that's a lie. And so he doesn't give in to the temptation. In John nineteen eleven, Jesus answers Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Pilate, you think you're in power? All the power you have is derived from my father. And Pilate, this is the plan. This is the way that it has to be. So do your worst. It's like Jesus is saying again, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And John says it's actually from this point forward that Pilate tries to release Jesus himself because even he realizes that Jesus has done nothing wrong. But in that moment, even Pilate chooses himself over Christ. So the Jews begin to accuse Pilate of being disloyal to Caesar and a riot starts forming. Pilate realizes that he is losing his grip on things, that a lot of trouble is coming and so he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Our Lord was forced to carry his own torture instrument all the way from the governor's mansion to a place called Golgotha a place of public execution where he was stripped naked, nailed to a piece of wood, lifted up to be exposed to the elements, to hunger and thirst for hours while he is subjected to the derision of the crowds hanging there in the air between two criminals. And Pilate had Jesus crucified under an inscription that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I think Pilate liked the irony there because the Romans used crucifixion as a means of intimidation to would-be rebels. This is what happens to anyone who would dare oppose the Romans. This is what happens to would-be kings. But of course, Pilate says more than he knows when he puts that inscription 
over Jesus. Because truly this is the king of the Jews. This is the Christ. But it is not the king that anyone expected. Not even Peter. As I said, the Jews expected a king that would come and deliver Israel through military conquest. But we got something so much better. We got a king who delivered us by dying on a cross. Do you see it? This is the point that Peter's denial is making for us. That we are all like Peter. If Peter was the very best disciple and he couldn't hold fast when temptation comes, then then what hope do any of us have? Not even Peter was good enough in his own strength to succeed when the temptation came. And so if we're being honest, we can all confess that we've been like Peter, haven't we? We all really can weep over our denials. Have you, out of a love for your own life or your own comfort, said things or done things that you know are directly in opposition to God's will? Have you, out of shame or the fear of others, not spoken up, not said what is right, not confessed Christ when you know that you should have? Have you been in those moments where you're on the spot, where you're caught off guard, and temptation comes, and you give in? What I'm asking is, have you failed? And has your failure exposed the sin in your own heart? Maybe even now, some of you are coming into this room, and you feel that weight of your sin. Maybe you have spent your whole life denying Jesus, will you confess that you're a failure? Confess with the rest of us? Because, friend, your failure is precisely why Christ died. Because all of us have sinned. All of us have loved ourselves more than God. All of us have made ourselves enemies of Christ. And we have to understand, we have to see what Peter couldn't see yet. That Christ dying on the cross was not one more failure, one more tragedy in a long night of tragedies. But that cross was the glorious means of our deliverance in the face of all of our denials, all of our faithlessness. Jesus never once wavered. He alone was faithful. He was faithful to save the failures, like you and me and Peter. Jesus didn't deserve the condemnation that he received that night, and Jesus knew it. But he let himself be delivered into these hands of evil men so that they could kill him on the cross. But all of that that he went through, carrying his cross, being exposed, being mocked. That wasn't what he deserved. That's what we deserved. Our sin is that serious. Jesus died the death of a rebel. But we are the rebels. We have rebelled against God. And Jesus suffered in our place. Jesus took all of the guilt that you deserved for all of your failure. And he said, 
I will pay the penalty for you. I will be a ransom. And he was. He suffered for you. And he suffered alone. Just like he said that he would. Even Peter left him. Christ was left entirely alone. You know why? Because it had nothing to do with Peter. There was nothing that Peter could do. It wasn't up to Peter and it wasn't up to you. It's up to Christ alone and he did it. Amen? At the end of John 19, Jesus has breathed his last breath up on that cross and they take him down and they lay him in a tomb. And if that was the end of the story, Jesus dies and they put him in the ground and the last we hear about Peter was his failure. That would be a terrible ending to the story. So likewise, if the only time that you come this weekend is tonight, there's not going to be a good weekend. Come back on Sunday. Because if we only had Good Friday and not Easter, as Paul says, then we are of all people most to be pitied. And our faith is in vain because we are still in our sins. But that's not the end of the story. As one song puts it, Friday is good because Sunday is coming. And the next time we see Peter in the gospel according to John, it's three days later, early Sunday morning. And Peter has just gotten word from Mary Magdalene that Jesus' body is no longer where they left him. He's not there because he's risen from the dead. And we'll consider more of what that means on Sunday, even what that means for Peter specifically. But tonight, I just want you to hear this. If Jesus Christ had only died on the cross, died and not been raised, then this would only be a tragic story of disappointment. Made all the more tragic because the disciple that Jesus should have been able to count on the most was not there when he needed him. But if Jesus Christ died and then was raised from the dead, then that means that his death is something entirely different. It wasn't a tragedy. It was a payment. It was a substitution. It was a ransom, and it worked. So I've got good news for you. Jesus is risen from the dead. And this is not the end of Peter's story. Peter's sins are forgiven, and we'll see that God will use him mightily to establish his church and proclaim the gospel to the nations. But that wasn't because Peter had anything good in himself. Was because our God is a loving God and we have a forgiving Savior. We have a God that loved Peter even when Peter didn't love him. And that's the good news that I proclaim to you. Whatever you are coming in here tonight feeling, whatever you weep over, there is forgiveness for your failure in Jesus Christ. If Peter can be forgiven of his failures, so can you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've failed, if you will weep over your sin, confess, 
and believe that Jesus is in fact the true king. Not a conquering king, not one that conquers the way that we would expect, but one who conquered by dying in your place. Then you too can be forgiven. If this was the end of the story, then Peter's last words would be, I am not. But what a grace. What a savior. That in fact, these are not the apostle Peter's last words. And he actually has a lot more to say, as we will see. Including these words from a whole book of the Bible that Peter would go on to write. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll conclude with this. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Oh God, what good news that is, that we have hope not in ourselves, but in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we do confess that we are not perfect, and that often we have too high a sense of ourselves. And Lord, if there is need for conviction tonight, I pray that you would bring it. But Lord, for all of us, would you remind us of the the hope of the gospel that Christ died to pay that ransom, that we have a Savior, and hallelujah, what a Savior. In his name we pray, amen.